Paul David Tripp says this, the earthly father is a God-given mnemonic device that would remind us of the glory of our heavenly father. He says the shepherd is a mnemonic device to remind us of God's own care for his own. The snow, which we saw this week, is meant to remind us of the Lord's purity and his holiness. The storm is a mnemonic device to remind us of his power and wrath. The daily rising sun is a mnemonic device to remind us of God's faithfulness. We're literally surrounded by gracious reminders of the presence, the power, the authority, and the character of God because he designed created things to function mnemonically. He knows how quickly and easily we all forget and how vital it is for us to remember. So he embedded reminders everywhere that we would look in his creation. That's the God we serve. A God of wonder, a God that is majestic and holy and powerful. And I would go further to say this, that God also created the bride of Christ, his church, to be a mnemonic device to the world who desperately lives in darkness and needs to see the light of Christ. Let me go one step further than that. A picture of God's church is found in biblical marriage. When a husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church in Ephesians 5. When a wife gladly submits and serves her husband in a way that honors the Lord. That's a beautiful picture as well. Matter of fact, it's such a beautiful picture that we think it's worth talking about. And so this week, we're going to conclude our all and wonder uh, series, and we're going to move into a marriage series next weekend that just helps you see the all and the wonder of God and how He's designed us to live together for Him in our marriages. And so, I encourage you to come if you know some friends that uh, need to have a little encouragement in their marriage. Maybe uh, they've got some challenges. Maybe they just want to grow some. It would be a great chance for them to spend the next handful of weeks with us as we conclude the month of February and into March together. And so encourage you to be thinking about that. Today, as we conclude this series, uh, I've got to confess a couple of things to you. Um, One, I I confess to you that there's a part of me as the shepherd of this body that has a difficult time conveying this message without my flesh showing through. What I mean by that is this, is that there may be a time in this message that you see my passion and it can come across as a little bit harsh. And if I'm honest with you, there are some seasons as a pastor that are tough. Uh, they're tough in the flesh. And it's because uh, in a week like this last one, um, I have taken calls over the phone of some terrible tragedies that have affected our body. I have done funerals. Um, I have counseled people that are difficult times in their marriage or season of their life. I have seen one man, uh, old in age, come to faith in Christ this week. I have had highs and I have had lows. And it has been a, a wonderful week because God always reminds me through these mnemonic devices of his faithfulness. But I must confess to you that one of the most disheartening things for me was not the gentleman that I buried or even the phone call that I took. But one of the most disheartening things for me are people who we call themselves believers in Christ, but they do not do what the local church should do. I mean, how do you shepherd that? How do you pastor that? How do you continue to have the same conversation over and over and over and over again? And that could be frustrating as a local shepherd, right? Because you're like, man, are these sheep just not hearing me? Do I need to say it a different way? Like, do I need to shake them up? I mean, do I need to kick them out of the fence? What do I need to do? And so I just pray that this text 
today as we wrap this series up, will just remind us of what the church is, a beautiful bride that no matter how frustrated a shepherd of that flock might become, it doesn't change the flock's beauty. So let me pray for us, and I pray that God's Spirit would challenge us, convict us, maybe encourage us today, uh, and would use us and this message to remind us of His faithfulness and why this thing called the church really matters. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. I pray, God, that you would use a mnemonic device of the teaching and the preaching of your word, something that happens every single weekend in America. I pray you would remind it to challenge our hearts, to convict us, to spur us on towards love and good deeds. I pray that you would remind us of your faithfulness. And I pray that in spite of a shepherd that sometimes can be foolish, sometimes can be harsh, sometimes can be cynical, sometimes can be a doubter. I pray, God, that in spite of me, that you would use your word to go forth. And I pray, Lord, that it would fall on fertile soil, that it would sprout up and it would bring about fruit in people's lives. And this room and in the room in Edgewood, Texas, nine miles down the road, I pray, God, that you would do what only you can do. And so we give this time to you. We pray that you would use it for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we're going to be in uh, this passage of Galatians chapter 3. Paul is writing to this church in Galatia, which uh, has had some struggles, and their struggles um, have had to do with uh, really some legalism and, and adding to some of the gospel, and uh, meaning that they really believed that it was important to trust in Jesus, but they also thought there were a handful of things that might have to do in addition to that. So they found themselves believing in Jesus plus a handful of other things. The challenge was that Paul would refute even guys like his friend Peter uh, in saying, hey, you know what, you, you can't live one way along, uh, um, among the, the Gentiles and the Greeks, and then when the Jews show up, you go back to living like the way you used to. There's either freedom in Christ or there's not. And so that's kind of what this book encompasses. But in Galatians chapter 6, as he's wrapping up this letter to this church, he encourages them to make sure they don't find themselves caught in transgressions or sins. Uh, the idea of is that they would be sure-footed, they would be stable, kind of the Ephesians 6, that they would be uh, finding themselves standing firm. Now, the reason that we are closing with this is because I used the first couple of verses last week in our message on community, which has to do with God's church, but it also means more than that. And so in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, uh, this is what it says, beginning with verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a gentle uh, in a spirit of gentleness. Uh, that word there, restore, is the word katarizo, which literally means to come alongside and restore to right order. So if you know that there's someone that they're not living their life in right order, you're to come alongside of them and say, hey, listen, man, we need to get some things in order. Now, obviously, um, the way that you handle this situation can reveal a lot about your heart. Uh, it can reveal a whole lot about your cynical spirit or sometimes about your domineering spirit because the goal of restoring someone is to do so in gentleness. I will tell you this, nothing will reveal more about your legalistic hard heart than the way you restore a brother. And so if you restore him in a, bit, uh, in a, in a, in a bitter way or in a, uh, in a harsh way, it reveals a whole lot about you. And, and the reason oftentimes that we're harsh is because if we're not careful, we forget that we were such men. 
A matter of fact, I'm reading in 1 Corinthians in, in chapter 6, it just shows a whole lot of challenges that are happening in the local church in Corinth. Matter of fact, Paul in chapter 5 is encouraging the leaders there to boot a guy out of the membership. So a lot of people go, is that really biblical? Like, should you boot someone out? Paul goes, yeah, absolutely. When people don't do what they say they should do. And then it kind of gets to the thing. And he goes, hey, and you should do this gently. And he goes, because you've got to remember as such were some of you. The reality is, is when we deal with someone who doesn't have their life in right order, the key is that we got to remember that we used to be the same way. Like there was a point in time where, man, I was foolish. And I can be prone to do that even now. Can I get a witness? Anybody know that, right? Um, And so the key is that we remind ourselves of that. Matter of fact, he goes on in the latter part of verse 1 and just says, Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The idea is not to be haughty or proud or to be arrogant or to be self-righteous. The goal is, is to speak the truth in love, to restore a brother gently so that they are walking in accordance with the word of God. The goal is that the local church would do that. Now listen, we all can shake our heads and in this case, we could probably all go, amen. Amen, we should do that. The problem is, is that when a brother finally comes to put your life in right order, usually we don't respond the way that a believer should respond. We rarely say, hey, thank you, you're right. We usually have rebuttals, we have excuses, and that also reveals something about our own hearts. Verse 2 says this, we should bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, this is a really interesting uh, area here because when it says bear one another's burdens, you've got to ask yourself, well, what does that really mean to bear one another's burdens? Uh, what, does that, what does that look like? And I think you'll get a really good picture of it here in a few moments when we get to verse 5. But the idea of bearing one another's burdens is that you would carry a load yourself. The idea is that, that you wouldn't leave a brother by himself. Uh, it's, it's the good Samaritan that you would help someone, that you would walk alongside with them, that you would care for them, that you wouldn't neglect to see the need and do something about the need. The idea is to be a part of something and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, that's a very interesting phrase, and I'll tell you why it's so interesting, is that he is wrapping up this letter, and he uses the word, so fulfill the law of Christ. Because there is a law in the Old Testament, and the law in the Old Testament has a bunch of rules and a lot of rituals and a lot of things that a person must do in order to be right with God. That person was called the Jew, and the Jew would spend their entire life doing rules and rituals and and ceremonies and civil things and ceremonial things and um, things that related to how they washed their hands and with the type of fish they ate and all these different things, and that's how they believed that they could fulfill the law and have a right standing with God. I find it interesting that Paul says, but hey, we as brothers and sisters in the New Testament church should fulfill the law of Christ. And the question you got to ask yourself is, what is that? And why does it matter? Because if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves saying, you know what? I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. But in there a list of things that I've got to do? Like I shouldn't kill my, my kid, right? Shouldn't murder. Yes, you could agree with that. Um, you shouldn't steal. You shouldn't covet your neighbor's house, their shoes, their wife, their donkey, or anything else. I know a lot of you are struggling with that donkey part, Okay. Uh, there's a lot of things in there. The question is, what does he mean by fulfill the law of Christ? And I think it's very clear in Matthew 22 when the Pharisees ask him, hey, hey, listen, teacher, if you're so great, then what is, 
what is the one command that we couldn't do? And he's referring to, in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. He's going, hey, out of the Ten Commandments, you know, which one of those ten is the most prominent? And this is what Jesus replies after they say, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he, meaning Jesus, says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this, this is the grace in the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then you see Matthew, the apostle, wrote, and he says, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That is the law of Christ. The law of Christ sums up all the law, all the ceremonial rituals, everything that you would find in your Old Testament. He goes, it's found and summed up in the law of Christ. And that is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is that if you love God, the Apostle John says that you will will be known as his disciple the way you love one another, the way you handle one another, which means that if you love one another, you'll bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Why? Because you'll love others the way that you love God. The reality, what Jesus is saying, he goes, listen, you can't claim to love God and not love his people, which I'll go one step further. Listen, lean in, please. You cannot love God and not love his church. I'm not talking about the parts you want to choose about the church. I'm not talking about the convenient parts. I'm not talking about the easy parts. I'm not talking about the parts that fit in your schedule. I'm talking about if you love God, he says you'll love God. People, and one of the greatest people that you and I will love are his people, your brothers and sisters. And it'll, it'll influence everything about what you do. And unfortunately, we live in a culture where our schedule influences what we believe and think about the church. But what God is saying, no, 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 that's not how it works. Our schedules don't dictate our love for one another. Our love for Christ dictates our love for one another. Which is a huge thing that many of us in this room have to wrestle with. And the reason we have to wrestle with it is because I want you to understand, as I spoke about last week about community, that being committed to God and his church is not easy, it's not convenient, it's oftentimes not even fun. But it is a reflection of us loving God and loving one another. That's what you'll do, is you'll bear one another's burdens. And when it's referring to that, it's not talking about the guy that is out there on the street with his truck broken down, although it can Paul is literally referring to care in the body, correction in the body, because that fulfills the law of Christ. Matter of fact, in verse 3, it goes on, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason of boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Now that's the question you and I have to ask ourselves. What does he mean By fulfilling the law of Christ, loving others, not deceiving ourselves, and carrying and bearing our own load. What is the question? What does that mean? Well, I'll give you an example of somebody not carrying their own load. This last uh, summer, actually right after school was out, Kelly and I had booked a trip to Disney World. Uh, Kelly and I had been uh, a couple of times. We went uh, when we were first married on our honeymoon, and uh, that's why we decided not to have kids for a decade. Uh, And so... (laughs) 
we made the decision there. I can remember it on the very first ride, and there were kids screaming in our ears. And we looked at each other and go, oh, we can't wait to get off this, this ride. And then we looked at each other right after that, and we go, and hey, let's hold off on having kids for a while. And so we were married almost nine years before our first one was, was, uh, was born, and that was Brady. Brady turned nine uh, last March, and will turn 10 shortly uh, here before too long. And so we decided, hey, our kids are the age. They were at six, seven, and uh, nine at the time. Let's take them to Disney World. They'll remember it. It'll be awesome. Uh, it won't be too much complaining. And then we've got our six-year-old, right? Um, happens to be a daddy's girl and happens to um, be like her mama, which means I will roll with the flow. Uh, and she, she will roll with the flow, roll with the flow, unless she's hungry or her feet are pounding. And about 10 o'clock at night, when the park's about to shut down and they're about to do the shows at night, is when Blakely seems to have two of those things kind of hit full force. I'm hungry, and Daddy, can you carry me? <laughs> and listen, I'm going to tell you this. Carrying that little girl on my back during the entire show, which doesn't happen to be like a 10-minute fireworks show. It's 40 minutes in which I'm trying to dodge everyone else so that she can see. I can't see a thing, but I'm trying to position her where she can see everything so she's not complaining. I hear about her feet hurting, but at the same time, she's mesmerized by the show. And all I can think about is the throbbing pain shooting down my back all the way down to my buttocks. <laughs> now, Blakely wants to go back to Disney World, of course. And what do you think I'm thinking? Let's wait till you're older, okay? Uh, the idea there is to carry someone, to bear their own load. If you bear your own load, it means that somebody's not carrying you all the time. To bear your own load means that you do your part, that you carry your own load, that you're responsible for what God has commissioned you to be. Now, here's where I need you to lean in. To bear your own load I'm not going to give you this message about, hey, here's the one thing you need to serve in, okay? Um, hey, here's the one area that you need to go and do. And if you'll do this, you'll so fulfill the law of Christ, you'll love other people, and you'll help your church. That's not the goal. But the goal is to think through this. What does he mean to fulfill the law of Christ, to love God, to love others, and to bear our own load? How does that manifest itself in our life? And this is where we're going to camp for a few minutes. And I would say that it manifests itself in two areas. One, in our relationship to God and what we owe Him because of what He's done for us. He has, bear, he has borne our own load by sacrificing His Son on the cross so that we might have eternal life. Can we agree on that, church? And because of that, we do owe our lives to Him. Now, that can be up for debate as to how much of our lives we owe to him. I think the scripture is clear that we owe everything to him because we are now his ambassadors. But then it goes further than that. If we fulfill the law of Christ and we bear our own load, we're not just bearing our own load towards God, but we're also bearing our own load towards men. And I think that breaks itself up into two categories. And I think it's very crystal clear in the New Testament as to what those categories are. One of the own loads that we bear is with the responsibility in the local body, the church, the bride of Christ, our brothers and sisters. And I think it's also those outside of the body, which are those who need to be our brothers and sisters. And so the reality is, is that our focus should be on God. And as we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we can't help but to love our neighbor as ourselves. And our neighbor starts first in our home with our brothers and sisters. And our home, the family of God, is here. And it moves out in concentric circles from there to people who need desperately to know God. 
And so the reality is, as we think about bearing our own load, we are responsible to God as our creator, the one who gives us mnemonic devices to remind us of his faithfulness. And we are also responsible to each other in this room and to the world out there who desperately need him. It reminds me of this thing that we have at Stone Point called the mission. Our mission is to connect people to God, to others, in service, and to the world. The reality is that all of that is summed up in the greatest command, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second is like, to love our neighbor as ourselves. The reason that we connect people to God is because we need him. The reason we connect people to others is because we need community, we need to serve the body, our brothers and sisters, and we need to serve those outside on mission called the world. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought through that? What does it look like to really serve God? How do I know that I'm serving God? Well, you know because you bear your own load. Now, this interesting word, to bear your own load, in the Greek is only used three times in all of your Bible. And listen, here's where it's used. It's used right here in this verse. And the two other times it's used are very interesting to me because it's used by Jesus. One of which, in Matthew eleven thirty, he says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's right after he says, Hey, come to me who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And then he says those words, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The same Greek word there for load, burden. Not the same word that he uses in Galatians 6.1, which you're to, or 6.2, to carry your own burdens. It's a different word. The idea here is to put someone on your back, Okay. Um, that you would carry a load that's, that's difficult. The other account of it is actually a warning. So you got this example right here that Paul uses. you got the one that Jesus used and said, hey, come to me, my burden is light. And then he's got this other one, which is a warning, and this is the warning. Listen to this one. Matthew 23, verse 4, he says, they, meaning the Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens. Or in some verses, versions, it says cumbersome loads. He goes, they tie up heavy burdens and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Now listen, when I jumped into that and I saw that in the Greek, my mind exploded. And here's why. This is not by coincidence that this word's not used often. And it's not in coincidence that it's used in these texts that parallel one of them. Here's what he's saying. To bear one of those load puts you in one of two camps. One in which you love God supremely and completely, and he is the one who bears your burdens. He is the one who makes your yoke easy and your burden light, which means loving him, serving him, loving others, and being his witness out there is not a burden, but a joy. Or you're on the other camp, and the other camp is this, that you require things of others that you're not willing to do yourself. And you're a Pharisee. And we have one or two camp in all this room. You're either the one who goes, I, I find it a joy to serve God and serve others. It is not a burden at all. I love carrying the burden that God's given me. I love him completely and I love to serve others. Or it's the opposite. Everything you do is for your own reasons. It's for your own conveniences. It's for... It's for your own parallels. And I, I, can't, I don't have time to discover or think through your motivations. You and the Lord know that. But you're in one of two camps. You're either the one who ties up cumbersome loads on others that you don't carry yourself, or you're the one who goes, I trust in the one who supremely carries my load. And so the question is, is okay, if we're to carry our load, and that's what we think the text means, then how do we carry our load to God? Well, here's what it looks like. If we carry our own load to God, here's what we know. We know that we were once dead, and we've been made alive in Christ, Ephesians 2. 
Amen. That's a great thing. It also means that we should grow up in our salvation. That means Colossians 2. It starts with milk and we grow to maturity. One of the reasons that we're offering this How to Study Your Bible class, it's starting next Saturday and the following Thursday for men and women, is to help you grow up in your maturity. Can I, can I just honestly say that that's an area that we could do better in? And so that's something we own. That's a, that's a burden that I share. The scripture says that in relation to God, that we do become his sheep. That means that he is our good shepherd. That means we hear his voice, John 10, and we begin to follow him. That's what helps us know that we are his. It means that we no longer live uh, under the power of the world, the power of the devil, or the power of our own fleshly desires. That's manifested and made clear in Colossians 2.8, John 8.44, Ephesians 2.3. Matter of fact, many of us, even when we listen to this message, we know that there is a deceiver. His name is Satan, the obelisk, the accuser. In John 8.44, he says he's the father of lies. And even in this, you could be even going, you know what? This is over the top. He's over the top. And that is from the enemy. It is a lie straight from the pit of hell. Because this isn't over the top. This is devotion to the Lord. Why? Because we identify as his child and we become heirs to our heavenly father. We are his people. That means that we are his slaves and he is our master. That's what it looks like to have devotion to God. It means that he is the vine and we are his branches and we bear fruit, Matthew 7. People will know that we are his by the way we live and conduct our lives, by the way we exude his character. We belong to his church. We are his bride. We are faithful to him. So what I'm helping you understand is, according to the Scripture, because of our devotion to God, there is no satisfaction outside of, these worlds, outside of these walls in the world. Our satisfaction comes from a devotion to God and His people, which should change the way we think about the world and about how much we give ourselves to it. But it doesn't just mean that we have a devotion to God, but we have a devotion to one another. So let's start with our devotion um, towards those outside of our walls. It means that we, because we're ambassadors for Him, we go and we make our appeal to others about him. So we share the message of our king. That's very clear in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We are his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, Acts 1.8. We go and we share. We are his messengers. We proclaim his word. How do people hear unless we share? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, Romans 10. We have a, a message that we have to share. And when we share that, what do we do? We teach them. We baptize them. Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20. We have a part to proclaim to others outside of the world. Can we all agree on that? And so the point of this is that we love God and we have a message to share with those outside of the world. And that is because God has done this beautiful thing and the all and the wonder of God, one of the mnemonic devices that he's given us is the church who is devoted to him and devoted to others. But that brings into question, well, but what about us? What, what, how do we bear our own load here? How, how do we bear our own load in his work within community? One, as we discussed last week, and encourage you to go back and listen to the, the entire message, we, we devote ourselves to God and to others through living in biblical community. Not because somebody makes us, not because somebody requires it of us, but because it's a joy if we complain about our community, then we are tying up cumbersome loads on somebody else that we're not carry, carrying ourselves. Like, that's, that's more pharisaical. But if we love community, then it expresses our love for God and love for his bride and his people, our brothers and sisters. That would be like you and I saying, you know what, I love hanging out with you. As I'm talking to my friend, I go, I love hanging out with you, but I hate your wife. Now, would that shock you a little bit? 
Would that hurt your feelings a little bit? Maybe if you were the wife that I was referring to? Absolutely. So is it really okay for us to say, God, I love you so much, I'm so devoted to you, and you convince yourself that you are, and then you don't love his bride? That would be foolish, wouldn't it? But that's what he's talking about. So how, how do we love his bride? We, we live in community together. We share in his work. We share in the work of God. That means that we use our gifts, 1 Corinthians 12. That means that we use our gifts in the body. Um, it could be hospi- uh, hospitality. It could be teaching. It could be discernment. It could be exhortation. It could be a multitude of things. But the reality is we give our lives away and we use our gifts for the furtherment of the flock. Matter of fact, we even preserve the unity of the flock. That means that our goal is to be unified in all things. The goal is to work things out together. We feed and we nourish our own lives because of the flock. That means that we don't rely on one guy, a master teacher, to share the word with us once a week. That, that the flock, because they are a part of God's family, has a responsibility to feed themselves. Think about a shepherd and sheep and a pastor. A shepherd can provide for the sheep, can, but do they really make the sheep eat? I mean, think about that. And the answer is, I hope not. That's an entire, entirely a lot of work for one shepherd to feed the entire flock individually. And so we have to care for ourselves as we're saved. We protect the bride from gossip and slander and malicious things, James 3, and a variety of other passages. Romans 1 is one of those areas. And then we also we give our resources for the bride. Matter of fact, in verse 6 of Galatians, uh, he goes on, he says this a little bit further. He goes, hey, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. He's speaking there of generosity, that we would share financially to the work that we would give. Matter of fact, uh, here's how you know uh, on what camp you land in, if you're pharisaical or if you love God. If you're in your mind, and you've already said it in your mind, uh uh-oh, he's about to go on a financial rant. You should know what camp you're in. Matter of fact, can I, can I just say something? And, and this is going to be a little harsh, and so, but I want it to be clear. If you are the guy, or you're known for being the guy, that when somebody starts talking about money in the church, you say, oh, here they go. They're all they want is your money. It is already a clear indicator that you are pharisaical, that your heart is far from God. Your words give you away. And not only do your words give you away, but listen, it reveals to me not only who you are, but it puts into question whose you are. Because people who love God and who bear the burdens of the body, they don't just love God, they love others, and they support one another in the work of God. Why? Because that's what families do. I mean, ladies, honestly, think about it real quickly. If your husband brought in a paycheck and you stayed at home and he came in and he goes, hey, baby, where's, where's dinner? And you're like, hold on. What do you mean, where's dinner? Well, I mean, you don't work. Oh. And then what if, he, what if he just kind of shared a little portion of the paycheck with you as it came in? Hey, this is only what you're allotted to. That would be foolish, wouldn't it? Th- that's what we do to God if we're not careful. It's like it's the same principle. So be thinking about that. Matter of fact, I'll go on to say this. If you and I are not generous and we neglect generosity in our lives, it's not a financial problem. It's a spiritual problem. Why is it so quiet? <laughs> Paul says to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly, under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
So when he's talking about that we would bear the burdens, that we would bear our responsibility, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches, verse 6, here's not what he's saying. He's not saying as a Christian, because you're bound to the law of old, that you have to give a 10% tithe. That's not what he's saying there. We are bound to the law of Christ, which what mean, what, what does he mean? Are you bound to give 10% because that's what makes you faithful? And the answer is no. Matter of fact, that would be a little too parental. And, and listen, we don't see that in the New Testament. We live by grace. But here's what we should know, is that if we live by grace, Paul says you will be generous. If you live under the yoke of Christ, which is not to slavery, but of a servant, serving the one who you are bound to, then it is the light to serve him, to give to him, and to love his church. He goes on and he says this in verse 7. I'm going to read through verse 10 all at once just so you see it. He goes, hey, do not be deceived. And then he gives us a warning. God is not mocked. mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. So what does he mean by that? He goes, hey, just don't deceive yourself. Why? Because our, our lives, our lips, and the things we do give us away. You can convince anyone around you how much you love God, but if you're not committed to God, you're not committed to those inside the family of God, and you're not committed to sharing the message with those outside of the wall, then he goes, you can be deceived if you want, but God's not mocked. The reality is you're responsible to the chief shepherd. You can give an account to your earthly shepherd, which God has given you as a mnemonic device to remind you that God cares for you. But the one we'll stand before is the one in which we're accountable to, and that is the chief shepherd. What are we accountable to? We're to love God and love others. It's displayed in the way we serve him, love him, give ourselves away for his bride, serve our brothers and sisters, and tell others about the hope that we have in Christ. And we cannot do that in the American church without a heart of generosity. Can I just tell you real quickly, candidly, Right now, we are $70,000 behind budget compared to last year, and it all relates to the lack of generosity of God's people here. That's the downside of not having business meetings. I recently came across statistics, and I'm going to share this today. But 50% of our members, those who dedicate themselves, statistics show us in real time, because we are into data around here, that our members make between seventy-five dollars and $150,000. We've believed the lie in the last nine years that the reason that our people don't give is because we don't have money. No, compared to national averages, our church is far richer than most compared to in the nation when it comes to people with wealth in that category by over 25%. You know what it tells us? That God is mocked. It tells us that God is mocked. It tells us that the work that we're doing in Van Zandt County matters to some of us. It doesn't matter to all of us. Can I tell you that's why it's frustrating to be the pastor here? In real time, I know that there's many of us who say, oh, we love the bride. Oh, we love Christ. But it's not displayed in the way we love and care for the flock, in the way that we love and care for one another. And so don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will reap what his flesh does. And that's corruption. So he goes, if you want to live in the world, great. Go live in the world. But he goes, that's not characteristic of living as a part of God's bride. So if you're going to be his bride, be his bride. That means don't go be a part of infidelity out in the world. Be transformed, Romans 12, 1 and 2. But to the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life and let us not grow weary. That means don't let us grow 
grow weary and losing heart of doing good. For in due season, we will reap. And if we do not give up, we will reap. What are we reaping? We will reap the, the life that God has for us. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And then, hey, underline over and over and over and over again, if you have your Bibles, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Where do we do the most good? We do the most good with our brothers and sisters in the household of faith. And so what is the key? Our key is to be found faithful to Christ. And being found faithful is more important than being found influential. Our goal is not, hey, I'll do it if you put me in the place I really want to be. Hey, our goal is, no, our goal is to be found faithful to the one we love. Martin Luther says this, and I'll close with this quote and then with prayer. To preach the gospel for praise is bad business, especially when people stop praising you. Listen, do you know why I give this message? Because in obedience to my heavenly father as ambassador. Do you really believe that it's because I'm going to get the praise of a lot of people today? No. One of the things that encouraged my heart on Friday mornings, I was meeting with a guy, and he goes, can I just share something with you? And I go, absolutely. And he goes, listen, the reason my family goes to church here is because you will courageously speak on things that no one else will touch. And listen, can I tell you that in my flesh, it's not easy, and it's not what I want to do. He goes, hey, listen, you find your praise in the testimony of a good conscience. For anybody to covet praise is foolish, because the praise of men will be of no help to you upon the hour of your death. As it is, the praise of men stops when we die. And so before the eternal judge, it is not the praise that counts, but to your own conscience. Church, we got to do what the church does, or we got to stop calling ourselves a church. And so may the Lord convict us, challenge us, chasten us. For some of us, I pray that we're here today hopping into community. Why? Because that's what God's people do. They live in community. They bear the burdens of one another. They share in the gospel hope. So let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would use this message to spur us on towards love and good deeds. I pray that you would carry us on to completion, knowing that one day we'll see you face to face. And Lord, as difficult as it can be to hear this message and to heed these words, I pray that we would know that we can only reap what we sow. If we want to put seeds into the world, then we'll sow what the world sows. But if we want to see, uh, see fruit that is sowed from the eternal harvest of what you call good deeds. Lord, I pray that we would be your workers. I pray, Lord, that we would be your workmanship, creating Christ Jesus to do good works, Ephesians 2. I pray that we would be your ambassadors, your hands and feet, that we would use our gifts for the body, that we would serve the body, that we would die for the body. And Lord, just as we would die for our earthly brothers and sisters, I pray that much more that we would die, Lord, for our spiritual brothers and sisters in this room. Oh, Lord, help us to, to magnify and to make much of your church and Lord, I pray for those that even in their spirit right now, like there's just something in them. They're like, this is over the top. It's, it's too much. It's a little cult-like. Lord, I pray that you would show them that the bride of Christ is different than the world. And so it means that we don't give in to all of our feelings, but Lord, we do the work of God. Lord, help us to know that that work is to give our lives away. You said... In Galatians 2.20, For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who He gave Himself for me. 
Thank you, God, that you gave yourself for us, the bride. May we give ourselves for you. In Jesus' name, amen.